Welcome to Women Behind the Scenes. I'm Eloise Singer, a filmmaker and founder, and this is a podcast that shines a light on the creators behind some of the most impactful and acclaimed movies of the moment. Carmel Cochran's recent film, Rye Lane, is a rom-com set over the course of one day in South London. Directed by Rain Allen Miller, this heartwarming, upbeat film caught the attention of critics when it premiered at Sundance, and it's now out on Disney. Alongside Rylane, Carmel has been one of the most recognised casting directors in the industry, with projects such as The End of the Fucking World, The Lighthouse, Mothering Sunday, and Emerald Fennell's upcoming film Saltburn. Carmel and I jumped on a call to chat about the casting of Rylane, how she knows when she's found the right actor, and why she's reframed her definition of success. So go on, spill the tea. What happened? She cheated on me with my best friend. Wait, is that... <laughs> no, no, I need to figure this out because it's baffling. You dumped this funny, clever, successful accountant for this jobless human binfire. My <laughs> work precedes me. <laughs> I'd love to learn about what inspired you to be involved in the project. I had worked with the director, Rain Allen Miller, before we'd, we'd created this kind of, well, Rain had created it and I'd helped with casting a short film during lockdown. And we started talking and she said, I, ca I can't quite remember a chicken and egg, whether the short film came first or Rye Lane came first. But we started talking and... Um, we did a FaceTime and we realised we've both got the same chin mole and um, kind of fell in love with each other. I hope it's mutual. And I read the script and just absolutely loved it. I thought it was just such a refreshing change from all the kind of doom and gloom. It was just a pure love story. And I'm not even a romantic. In fact, I'm kind of anti-romance. But I just loved the simplicity of it. I don't know whether to admit now or not that I didn't know that Rye Lane was a real place. <laughs> I'm I'm fully West London, and uh, that was funny. That was very funny. I mean, it does feel like a love letter to the place as well as a rom-com, which I love. And it's just, as you say, it's such a heartwarming film in every way and so witty. That's what really came across when I watched it is there are lines in there that are just so funny. So I can imagine when you read it, you were just like, oh, yeah, this is such a winner. Yeah, and there were just moments that were absolutely elevated by the casting process. So I don't want to do any spoilers, but the scene where in the restaurant, when Ben did his audition, we were in, I mean, we were crying. We had to get him to retape his audition because we were like, we can't send this. It was on Zoom and it was just Rain and I in absolute hysterics, laughing over his, his audition. I mean, I guess we probably should have learned to mute ourselves, but <laughs> this was early COVID. Um but just it just felt really special and different. Even in the casting process, we were kind of left fairly alone to to let it happen organically. And so what was the casting process with this? So you met Rain, fell in love with each other's gym moles, and then what happened from there? <laughs> we went for breakfast and were, had been told by our producers very strictly to uh, actually work. We did not. We went we went shopping and we basically had our own Rye Lane day where we went for breakfast and we went shopping and then, but it was like my little tour to Rain of Notting Hill. And then we went through lists and ideas for casting and we were both just really on the same page from the beginning. 
And we decided that we were going to do like a casting speed date session where we'd get the actors in with their different partners. We were going to put out tape. I mean, we had high hopes, nothing, none of this came to fruition, but we wanted to sit them all down at tables and speed date and have someone filming from one side and another camera on the other side. And we do it all outside because of COVID. But in the end, we did the exact same thing kind of in a casting studio (laughs) in a basement with no windows. But um, yeah, it was a chemistry process. I had recently zoomed with David and there was just something so magnetic about him. And as soon as I read the script, I kind of thought of him. And then we were just trying to pair, just get the the right person to sit next to him. And so obviously David, who plays Dom, and then with Yaz, it's it's Vivian. How was the process of finding Vivian to play Yaz? I think her tape was really, really good. She was really funny. She came in and in the chemistry sessions, something just wasn't quite working. She was just nervous. So I think it, it just wasn't almost what we knew she could do. So I took her back outside and I was like, just calm down, <laughs> relax. And then she came back in and absolutely nailed it. We knew, I think we really wanted it to be her. And did you guys then do a chemistry test with David and Vivian? Yeah, we did two days of chemistry with David and I think four women on one day and then four women on another day. And I think David would have been in absolute heaven. But yeah, it was hilarious. We mixed and matched. We got them in in pairs. We went through the script. We also got them to do improv. We didn't get them to dance, I don't think, which is normally something that I always do. Can't remember us doing that, but it it was just pure fun. I love that. That sounds really fun. And it's really interesting as well, just hearing about this casting process because there are so many different ways that you can go about casting a film. And it feels like you don't have one set approach. Would you say that you kind of vary your casting process based on the project that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Like if I was casting the Northman, for example, where there are no lols in the script you just wouldn't approach it in the same way you couldn't although we did do lots of improv for that actually and that was really fun but I guess every single film that I go on to I try and come up with something new because otherwise my you know I've been doing this 17 years I'd be quite bored by now if we just went in and read the lines and then left I also really try and relax everyone and make the atmosphere as calm as possible because I can't act I can't act at all so I've just got utter respect for anyone who can come in and do it but I want them to feel safe and wanted and appreciated, I guess. Mm. And just comfortable and, yeah. Comfortable. And I think that we knew that Yaz was the person for us, but you've still got three or four other young ladies who you've asked in. So you've got to treat everyone with this kind of same respect and give them the same time and let them have the same journey, even if you are particularly excited by one person. What for you is the moment where you feel this is the person that's right for the role. Do you have like an instinct that says like, oh yeah, that has to be the person to play this? Yeah, I get like a little buzzing in my fingers and I always used to say, I feel it in my fingers and then I just think of that song. Um, No, I just get this, yeah, like a little tingle and you just know, and that doesn't even have to be someone who's auditioned. Sometimes I can get it off of just someone's headshot or I don't know, I guess I've just got good instinct. I think I have good instinct. It does feel like you have a bit of a superpower in a way. I don't, I've never heard of anyone who's like, yeah, I know when it's right because I have a tingle in my fingers. And it's not even, it's not even, a lot of people talk about a feeling in their stomach. I don't get that. It's literally in, and it's my three, these three. Weird. That's hilarious. Mine is definitely gut. I can, if something, but it's more if something's wrong. I'm like, oh my gut, it's telling me that something's wrong. But I like that it's, I like that it's your fingers. 
I definitely get it in my gut in terms of projects. Like there's a couple of projects that I've worked on that instinctively I thought I shouldn't do. And I knew that I shouldn't do them and I was ultimately proved right. And that was definitely like a guttural feeling of doom. (laughs) What made you feel that like you shouldn't have done them all? When you read a script, what is it that you think, oh, this is the one for me or this isn't the one for me? I'm really interested by doing things that are challenging or things that I find quite difficult. I don't really ever want to do the same thing twice. Ultimately, it's good writing. I've worked on Emerald Fennell's Saltburn uh, last year and I read that script. And as soon as I read the script, I mean, I, if, they had, if they hadn't hired me, I think I would have stalked them to high heaven and made them hire me. It was the one script that I was just like, I absolutely have to do this. And I think it's just because it spoke to me on so many levels. The story's amazing. You'll see and I hope feel the same. So that's a really good example of one that I would never let go. It was the same with Mothering Sunday. I'd read the novella and got the script through. And I said to Liz Carlson, the producer, I've never chased after a job, but I want to do this. And then times when I have made a wrong judgment at kind of genres that are not for me, genres that I don't watch. And I've kind of been attracted to the job because of the money or the kudos attached to it. And that's not really worked. And then and a, f- a few other times, it's just been based on the vibe of the people and the production. And I get a feeling that, you know, we're probably not going to get on. And then that's ultimately proved right later down the line. So my 2023 is kind of listening to my gut a bit more. I've had that of just getting a vibe of being like, oh, these are the right people to work with. I kind of have that with like Robert Eggers. It's like a family. We, it, we've just worked on Nosferatu and the producer, everything has been absolutely wonderful. And it feels rare, but it shouldn't be. Yeah, I completely agree. It's one of those, I got some really good advice where someone said you cast your crew as much as you cast your cast. And it was such a genius line. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, you're totally right. I'm definitely going to take that one forward. That's great because it is true. If you've got someone who's making the whole thing toxic, it's just not fun. And jobs, I'm working on a job at the moment. I'm working on The Man in My Basement that Nadia Latif is directing. And we're just messaging all the time. We're so excited. I'll get an idea and I'll message her and she'll get an idea. And it's not that we're always kind of agreeing. Sometimes we disagree entirely, but it's just that fun feeling of collaborativeness and of collaboration rather and um, sharing, sharing. But, But again, it goes back to respect. I feel respected. Yeah, so true. My two rules when working with anyone is, is there a mutual respect and is there a mutual trust? And I think it sounds exactly as you're saying. It's one of those things. If you're respected and your opinions are respected, you don't have to agree. But ultimately, if there's something there that you think, yeah, what I'm saying, they're listening to this, then I think that's the foundation of any sort of like collaboration or working relationship, really. And I think you see that on Rye Lane. I mean, we all went to Sundance and shared a house. It was just, it feels, again, I'm going back to that kind of family feeling of, people that I would do anything for. I'd do anything for Rain, you know, maybe not sell my kidney, but (laughs) I really respect her as a person and I enjoy working with her. What was it like when the film got into Sundance? (laughs) I mean, I was thrilled. I honestly did not think it would. I I thought it was going to be a, a fun film that we made and some people would go and watch it and like it, but I didn't think it was anywhere near some of the other things that I'm working on in terms of mass appeal. So it was really nice and surprising. 
And amazing. I mean, it's such a lovely, fun film. So to get that, yeah, recognition for it. And actually, I just that just it reminded me of a moment at Sundance where there was a, a row of ladies behind, and I'm going to do no spoilers, but they were kind of whispering to themselves and going, is that so-and-so? And I turned around and went, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, talking about that, that scene, which we'll try not to any spoilers, but <laughs> what was the story behind getting that actor on to, on to play that moment? Because it is so good. It had nothing to do with me. I would love to take credit and maybe I should, but it had nothing to do with me. I think he was friends with someone that was producing. So um, it was hilarious. It was, it was hilarious. It's such a great moment. And like, yeah, he's such a good sport for doing it. So it's... <laughs> I'm fascinated to know kind of what your daily nine to five looks like at the moment and how, how you're spending your time. Well, my 2023 was to go in with a bit more calmness and a bit a bit more control over what I was doing. I, I've kind of spent 2020 and 2021 in this kind of weird COVID hell of doing everything and being attached to so many things. And I'm, I'm trying to have more autonomy over what I do. I've got two children. So my day to day, I always do the school run. That's kind of my one thing. So I do that. I then will go and it depends on whether I'm coming into London. If I'm not, I'll always go and do an exercise class in the morning and then sit at my desk all day. But if I'm coming into London, I drop the kids off and then commute. And then it will be a mixture. I've got a team. We have a morning catch up, work out who's doing what. And then I just go through. I've got a massive to do list every day. And I'm really um, I love stationery. So I love sitting through and ticking things off. I love nothing more than finishing a task to the point where I'll create lots of little tasks that I've already done just so that I can take them off. <laughs> and do you feel that, because obviously now you're, you have your office, you're based in London, when you first started and you got into the industry, you then worked as a casting assistant and then set up your company when you were 25? Yeah, crazy. How do you feel kind of looking back, having set up your company then and where you are now? I think about this quite a lot. I walk down the street when I come into London or whenever I'm doing a casting and it really is a pinch yourself. I can't believe that everything that I kind of wanted has come true. I don't know that I would start a company now if, you know, I'm 36. If someone said to me, oh, I'm just so scared now. I think I was just so bullshy at 25 and thought I knew what I was doing. I definitely didn't, but I wouldn't change it. And it's afforded me the lifestyle that I want and the ability to have children the way that I want to, be the mother that I want to. So I'm happy. That's really lovely. <laughs> I have my own production company. And for me, similarly, I think if I look back, knowing what I know now, I don't think I would start it because it was so difficult. But at the same time, I'm so grateful that I did when I did because I was so naive. So it's like that naivety that sort of pushes you forward. Yeah, I mean, I remember just, you know, I did business studies A-level and I remember setting up a company on company's house within 10 minutes and being like, okay, great, that's done. <laughs> Took me three hours to make a website on iMovie at the time. I just, yeah, it was a completely different landscape. But I really like it. There is a whole new wave of casting director that stepped out and I like to think that, you know, I was not one of the first, but, you know, I was at the beginning of something that's led to really nice change in the industry, I think. What do you think that change has been? I think there are so many more casting directors. There's so much more 
not enough, but there is more diversity in the type of person that is now a casting director. And a lot of us are really good friends. Like I'm in a group chat with two other really amazing, respected casting directors and we exchange information. We laugh, we cry. So I, I would say at least four of my best friends are casting directors. Probably quite weird, but it's true. I don't think that's weird at all. And it's nice as well to be able to share that because I can imagine that there are these highs and lows with casting and there are points that are really, really stressful. And I think it's quite nice to say, oh, are you going up for that job too? Okay, yeah, I am. You know, it's a bit like the acting community, whereas I just don't know if there there was that. Maybe when I was an assistant, I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't privy to those conversations, but I just think that there's a really nice group of compassionate casting directors who have children and understand not that you have to have children you know just you can empathize with different situations if you are in those situations do you feel that being a mother has shaped the projects that you're picking or the stories that you want to tell yeah definitely I think I do like the way that my business works I do commercials music videos and I'm really hands-on I do all of the creative and I don't do any admin unless I really really have to I, I hate admin But what that allows me to do is be really selective with the film and TV stuff that I do. And I won't ever, ever, as a woman or anyone, say that anything that's come to me has come to me because of luck, because I just don't believe that it it has. And it really frustrates me when you hear people saying, oh, I'm so lucky. It's like, you're not lucky. You've just worked hard or maybe you haven't. You know, it's just I think that I curate what I do quite carefully. And I hope that that's reflected in the films and the TV and stuff that I do. And that is impacted by me having children. I don't want to waste my time on something that I don't care about because that's time that I could be sat making fish fingers for my children. (laughs) And those fish fingers are very important. I mean, but I totally hear you. It's one of those things that you really appreciate the value of time because it is so limited. And you do have to weigh up, you know, is this important enough for me to justify doing it? Yeah. Because there, you know, there's so many other things in my life that are so important as well. Yeah, and I think it's so um it's so interesting. I get a lot of I still, even though my children are eight and four, will have producers call me and say, Oh God, I know you've got children. Can you do this? And well, are you going to be around because it's the half term? And I think I don't know, you just wouldn't ask this of a of a man. You just wouldn't. So I still come up against a lot of that. But ultimately, I work harder than I've ever worked having children because my time is so scarce. So you you have to utilise your time properly. Pre-kids, if I was on a massive film, you know, there would definitely have been a lot of time for massages and basically doing everything other than work. Whereas now I just can't do those things. I have to do the work that I have to do in the time that I have. I do find as well that I do two shifts. So I kind of, whilst they're, they're at school... I'm working. And then when they go to bed, I pick everything up again, which is probably not that healthy, but I don't mind it. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Sort of finding a routine and rhythm and kind of balancing out. Yeah. Do you find that the film industry is still challenging when it comes to having kids? I think that I am just very vocal and forthright about what I will and won't do. And so I have booked a holiday over Easter and I've made it very clear on the projects that I'm working on that I am not working during those two weeks. And obviously, if there's a massive emergency, I will. But I I just I don't have to explain. I didn't I didn't say what I was doing or why I couldn't be available. I just said it's Easter and I'm on holiday. But I think you've got to have the 
confidence and the security in your voice to be able to say that. And it's taken me a long, long time. I don't think I've ever admitted that I've been on holiday before and would be at dinner about to order and then having to kind of run off and go and sit in a loo and do a conference call or always bringing my laptop to the beach and having to make a little makeshift office. And I just don't want to do that anymore. I think, you know, time is really precious. That's really insightful. I really find it difficult to switch off. And it's something that my New Year's resolution is that I need to take all of my holiday time. Because last year I took seven days of holiday, which just isn't isn't conducive. No, and I explained to a producer the other day, I said, you know, look, you you get to work on one project, see it through to the edit, and then you do have a break. We don't. It, we go back to back to back. And that's really funny that you talk about seven days. I get a week off at Christmas where really nobody ever calls me. And that is it in a whole year, one week. And that's just not enough. And I come back being the best person. I come back so happy and so refreshed. So what I'm trying to do a lot this year is give everyone the tools to allow me to do my job properly, which is me being healthy and me being rested and refreshed. And yeah, just trying to use my voice and saying, I can't do a call at five o'clock, but I can absolutely be available anytime from eight till 11 p.m. You choose. And I can go and do my run or whatever it is that I want to do to have a moment before you get into it again. I love that. And it's so true. And especially in terms of being able to rest and come back and being your best self. Like I took a holiday, I went to Mexico actually at the beginning of this year, which was amazing. And I came back having soaked up all of this vitamin D and went into the office and I was like, life is great. Everything's wonderful. And you tell that everyone had been in the UK and were obviously just like, tired and it was you know the depths of winter and I just realized I was like oh my gosh we all just need to take more rest and more breaks because you do it's literally the recharge of kind of refilling your batteries and being able to come back into work feeling super on it again but also it it that goes back into I think as well being a parent or you know if you're a carer there's such pressure on women to have it all, to do it all. Like it was World Book Day yesterday. And I always think that that's like the biggest mother trap, parent trap. But it's about, yeah, you, you can't be everything to everybody. And so just picking your priorities and carving out that time. Yeah, I quite enjoy this new phase of my life that seems a bit more calm and in control. And also because I've got such, I think I've got such great projects coming up, I'm kind of at a point now where I feel like I'm enough and my work is enough and I don't have to prove anything, which has taken a long time to get to that place. Yeah, that resonates. And also this feeling of always being on a treadmill in terms of you're constantly wanting to make a project to demonstrate your worth and then you're jumping onto the next project before that one comes on and you're trying to jump two and two and two with the pressure of thinking, okay, well, I need to do this because it will show this. And then you sort of look back and you're like, okay, now I'm doing a million things and it's trying to sort of juggle that balance. Totally. And I remember someone the other day asked me what projects I'd worked on recently and I couldn't even tell that everything became a blur. And I thought, God, that's in- insane. I don't I don't want to work like that. I don't want to live like that. It, it just felt all too much and all too overwhelming. And I think for years, I've just wanted a pat on the head. I've just wanted someone to say, you know, oh, you're doing a good job. And thereby give me a BAFTA or a BIFA or, you know, whatever else we need to validate. And I suddenly just thought that's not, if I carry on on this treadmill reaching for that, I'm never going to be happy. I'm always going to be in this bitter, miserable place where I think that I should have, you know, 
I always joke every time the awards come out, every single time, I always, always joke that I'm going to Kanye West the stage. And it is that feeling of like, you think you're really good and deserving. And sometimes when you don't get the recognition, it really hurts. But actually, there are lots of other people who would love to, to be where you are. And it's just kind of going full circle and working that out. It's taken a long time. <laughs> I think I'm still on that journey, to be honest. <laughs> Honestly. Do you feel that your definition of success has changed? Definitely. Definitely. For me, it was always financial. I mean, I grew up with no money. And so there was a figure in my head and I wanted to get to that figure. And then when I got to that figure, I mean, there was a moment in my life and actually not to name drop and be really annoying, but Alex Garland was someone who really, really helped with this whole comparison and where you think that you're going to be and He's just so wise. And we, when we were casting men, he, he just gave me such good info and advice. And I just thought, you know what? Success to me now is not what success to me was even a year ago. So success to me now is being able to take a two-week holiday and say, I'm going on holiday. I've got an office. Speak to everyone in my office. That to me feels like the best possible outcome. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And it was really interesting what you said earlier in terms of how you've never said before that you're going on holiday, like you've never put up an out-of-office. I rarely do it. Even when I am on holiday, I'll just say, I'm working in an area with remote signal, so there may be a delayed response or something like that. And it's such an irrational thought, but I think it's because one of my first jobs, um, it was like a zero-hours contract working for someone in the film industry, and I went on holiday and I said, oh, I'm really sorry I'm going on holiday, and they then didn't call me up again for any future work. And now it's sort of ingrained in me that like, oh, if I tell people that I'm on holiday, then they're never going to want to work with me again because they're not going to think that I'm available. And it's so irrational, but at the same time, it's it's a tricky one. But it's also so systemic of our industry, of the idea that you have to be on all the time and available. I remember that as an assistant. I mean, I don't think I ever had a sick day. I never went on, I didn't go on holiday for three years because again, I was on a, I mean, I didn't even have a contract. So it's that fear of, oh gosh, well, if I say that I can't do something, they're going to find someone else. And that was something that I really looked at when I first started hiring staff. I put everyone on PAYE. And I joked the other day because I was looking at the calendar and every day someone had a hospital appointment. And I was just like, what? The only time I had a hospital appointment was when I had my children. And it was really funny because I just thought it's just normal. It's real life that you have a hospital appointment for an allergy or whatever it is that you're doing. But we were working at a time where you couldn't do those things. Which is bonkers. Which is insane. I don't know any other career or industry where you couldn't have a sick day or you couldn't, you know, there, there are such horror stories. There are. There really, really are. I had it recently on a TV show where I was having a horrid time, an absolutely horrid time. The producer came in and a new producer came in and um, made me cry. And I was really affected by that. I kind of stood at the train station and thought, I'm 36. Why? I'm just doing my job. Why, why am I crying? I shouldn't be crying at work. That's insane. And so I called the production company and said, you know, I want their HR department. And nothing got done. Nothing got done. I'd asked for an apology from that person. I didn't get it. And it just made me feel really awful. I, yeah. And then there was kind of like, oh, you can escalate it. 
but you don't want to escalate it because if you do, then you suddenly become difficult and a nightmare. And what I find really interesting is there is a massive difference between the way that I'm hired in America and the way that I'm hired here in the sense that I could be hired on to do, you know, a massive American TV show or a massive American studio film with a budget of 180 million. I'll have to meet them. But here it's like, you know, if I'm meeting on a really low budget TV show, they'll still put me through my paces and really make me explain myself. And almost it goes back to that's why you don't feel like you're enough because you're never made to feel enough. So I just refuse those jobs now and I just don't care. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just not being made to feel like a child kind of with my hat saying, please, sir. I'm just not doing that. Yeah, I think it does go back to respect. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah. And feeling respected and making sure that the people who you're working with value you, your skill set, and also your time. Again, time. And if they don't, then it's not a happy collaboration and you should just walk away anyway. Because you should all really be excited to work with each other. I should be excited to work on the project. You know, I always explain to actors that I don't ever see it as a hierarchy. I don't see it as me sitting on top going, oh, you know, because we all need each other. And that is, and I think that's what feels so great about the man in my basement or even working with Emerald is that, I mean, Emerald is an absolute genius and actually quite intimidating because her mind is a really, really insanely clever place. But it feels collaborative and it feel, you feel respected and you feel justified and purposeful and, yeah, all the adjectives. <laughs> Did you have fun casting it? Oh, I had the best time. I had the best time. It was hard work because there's always inevitably a battle between the studio and creative. But, yeah, no, it was really good fun. Do you find that the biggest challenges with casting is finding actors or do you feel that it's actually like the creative voices in the room and navigating those voices? Oh yeah, I think it's the creative and navigation. And I always struggle with the idea of, you know, who's financeable and who isn't. And I always go into meetings and say, oh, well, so-and-so could walk down the street and you think that he's really big business, but actually nobody would know who he, or my mum wouldn't know who he was. So that's, you know, when you're talking about films that have a budget of 5 million, I, I always think you should cast from the heart. You reach for the sky, but eventually after doing it three or four times, you realise that it's not working and so you find your natural level. But I think it's getting harder and harder because so much is being made. And so you have to be creative about the way that you cast and it's tricky. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the landscape with streamers. In a way, it's obviously amazing that we're having all of these opportunities to make more content. But equally at the same time, just as a producer... Just finding crew is a nightmare. Like, it's so challenging. And I can imagine, similarly, for you, there must actually be quite a challenge affiliated with the idea that all of these platforms are creating more and more content. I think the thing that I will always remember is that when we were casting The End of the Fucking World, or, or like, I cast the pilot, and I remember when Netflix jumped on, they said to the director, you know, you can have whoever you want to cast it. Whereas, historically, I never would have been given that job because I had no real TV credits. And so I respect and admire streamers for that because they create jobs and, you know, but then at the same time, it's now really tricky because we're going up against people being paid extortionate amounts. I I just think that there's a really big disparity between what everyone's being paid, which isn't always helpful if you're not at the top. Yeah. Don't know what the answer is. It's a tricky one. Make less? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. 
just make quality over quantity. Yeah. But then it's subjective because there's lots that I do not like that everyone likes. Which is so true. And also you, ha- you do have to appeal to everyone, right? Like people's tastes are so different and one person who likes one thing might really hate something else, so. Yeah, and I actually, uh, you know, I do so much kind of low-budget indie stuff that I like it being subjective and I like there being this kind of really big arch between, oh, God, that person loved it, that person absolutely hated it. I'd rather do that than have something that was middling that everyone's like, eh, not, you know, it's fine. Fine is the worst description ever. <laughs> fine is the worst description ever. Literally. And I think, yeah, I've honestly at this point, I think I've decided that all the stories I want to tell, either people will love them or they hate them, but at least you provoke a reaction. And I think it's getting, it's creating that reaction of like, it needs to have a discourse around it of, okay, so why didn't you like it? Or why did you like it? What resonated? What was important about it? And if I always think the mark of a good film is if you come out of the cinema and you just talk about the themes in the narrative rather than being like, yeah, that was really fun. Being like, okay, but why did that person act in that way in this scene and what was it in relation to this part? And it's kind of that discourse afterwards that is the marking of a film. And and that happened in Sundance. I mean, Sundance, was it was my first Sundance. It was the best. Um, and I was watching nearly three films a day. But it was interesting. There was one in particular that I came out and I was livid. I mean, I was absolutely fuming <laughs> that I had spent two hours of my life watching this film. I won't name it. And everybody else was raving about it. Everyone was so kind of happy. And I just stood there really. And I was like, did we just watch the same thing? It is utter nonsense. It's so blah. It's it's fine. That's exactly that's exactly how I would describe that film. Fine with a capital F. Fine with a capital F. <laughs> I have one last question to ask you. Thank you so much for your time. I'd love to ask you, what is one thing that you love? about this industry and what is one thing that you would love to change about this industry? The one thing that I love about this industry is people. I absolutely love meeting people, talking to, and that, you know, can be actors, it can be musicians. It just, I love conversation, as you can probably tell. (laughs) Um, And I think it allows me to, I was a really shy child. And I think that if my kind of nine-year-old self could see me now she'd be like oh my gosh who is that person who can just talk and walk into a room and start a conversation with someone and it's given me the ability to do that the one thing that I dislike I think would probably be back to that feeling of insecurity and feeling you know not enough and I think that that's what our industry thrives on is a bunch of people who feel like they're not enough yeah I couldn't agree with you more Do you think that at this point you've changed in terms of your feeling of not enough? I'd say I'm a constant work in progress. Today's a good day, probably because I did some exercise. (laughs) The endorphins are hitting. The endorphins are going. Yeah, cut to me on Sunday night when I'm looking at everyone else thinking, why am I not doing that job? Yeah, you know, we all all have it. I think I just like to, to admit my feelings so that people, that other people understand that... I also have this huge thing with social media where everything I do, I post. And I really would love to one day do a transparent post of, you know, yes, I do all these things, but you don't see me crying in a corner because I got stuck on a train and missed my child's netball match that I promised her I'd go to. You know, that's the reality, really, not the, oh, we've just worked on this film. I'd love to see that post. 
You will one day. One day I'll crumble. <laughs> it's true, though. I mean, Instagram is the classic thing, isn't it? We see 1% of everyone's lives, not the 99. Yeah. yeah, and I just, I really feel for the people who are really good at their job who probably aren't getting what they should. You know, it's it's a hard, it's a hard one. Yeah, it is. It really is. Well, thank you so much for your time and your honesty. And I definitely always have that feeling of not enough. So I'm very, very grateful for you to be chatting about it and for us to talk about it. Because I think it is really important that we do discuss it more and openly as well. And yeah. kind of convey the idea that it is okay yeah. to talk about these things. Because ultimately, if we don't talk about it, then it's never going to change. Yeah. And people just have false ideas then and false narratives. Yeah which is never helpful. Yeah, it's very, very true. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for your time. And I'm looking forward to audiences to go and see Rylane. And I'm very, very excited that you and Rain managed to connect over your moles on your chin. (laughs) Me too. Thank you so much. A pleasure, an absolute pleasure. Thank you. So listen, if you enjoyed this episode and you fancy subscribing, then that would be fantastic. But more importantly, if there's someone out there who you think might enjoy learning about these incredible filmmakers, please do send this series their way. Women Behind the Scenes was hosted by me, Eloise Singer. The executive producers are myself and Kathy Anderson. The producer is Ben Weaver-Hinks. Production manager is Hannah Alexander. Post-production was done by Matt McGuinness. Editing, mixing and mastering was by Tom Fred Bradshaw at iGame Audio. Music was from premiumbeat.com and our production assistant is Lucy Davidson. 